Good evening, everyone. Please sit comfortably. Um, what I want to talk about tonight is not as um, clearly formulated in my mind as my talks usually are. So it's a bit of a work in progress, but I wanted to uh, share some thoughts with you. Um, it, it's a little bit philosophical in some ways, but it has some um, practical applications. I recently, last night in fact, um, finished reading a book which is a sort of cutting-edge book on neuropsychology and it's called The Hidden Spring and it's by a neuropsychologist called Mark Solms, S-O-L-M-S. And it's a very interesting book. There's a lot of it I don't understand about the, um, the, the mathematics and the physical aspects of it. Um, but it's a very interesting book, um, which is really about trying to understand what consciousness is, which is a, a, a problem, a philosophical problem that um, human beings have never, never resolved. We don't, we don't have a scientific understanding of what consciousness is. And um, philosophers talk about the easy question to ask around this and the hard question. The easy question is finding out more through brain research and MRIs, etc., what part of the brain is associated with um, thinking or with feeling or with seeing or hearing or whatever and getting those correlates together and getting a a better map of the anatomy of the brain. That's the easy question. The hard question, and it's referred to as the hard question, what is consciousness, right? What leads to all this neuroactivity becoming the conscious experience that you and I know intimately right now, that is what we are right now? That is the big mystery. Um, and there are, there's a kind of consensus forming about some things um, one um, scientist went off, seemed to go off on the wrong track for years and years, thinking that consciousness was to do with thinking, so with the cortex and the cerebral cortex. Now the consensus seems to be, which now makes kind of common sense, is consciousness is more to do about feeling, right? and it's centred in feeling. And it seems to be associated a lot with the, what's called the, the upper brain stem, which is deep in the brain, not, the, not necessarily the, the cerebral cortex, or that might light up as well. Um, and, uh, and what we, way of understanding the brain, we all know that we can be conscious, but the brain has functions which work unconsciously or there can be a lot of experience. Most of the experience is unconscious. And what I liken it to, it's like you'd have a, um, um, a CEO of a, a big bank, like say the Commonwealth Bank, and that CEO couldn't possibly know all the little transactions that go on day and day in, our, in, the, in the bank. They're all unconscious to him. And there's all these hierarchical structures where there's managers managing other people and it goes down in a hierarchy. So the CEO really, really, really only needs to happen, needs to know things that are really important to happen. Like, so if a big swindle happened in the bank or whatever, the CEO needs to know about it and do something about it. Well, our conscious experience 
works something like that. There's a whole lot of stuff we're just unconscious of. But if we really need to know about it, and it seems to come up into, a, into attention in our brain and we start to feel something, and then we do something about it to meet a need. So it's all to do with survival. And the way that the brain has been described, it's, it's, a, it's a future predicting machine. So it stores all these memories about past experiences. And then um, it's in a very good position to try and predict the future as much as possible so that a human being as a mammal get it, gets its needs met and survives. So that's basically what it does. So consciousness becomes very acute where, when we've got a task that we've got to complete and do, you know, like answer an email, you know, or someone comes to the door and rings the bell, right, or we get hungry, whatever, and we need to do something about it. But, this, and this is the point I come to with meditation, what happens when the brain doesn't have a task to do? There's a name for it. It goes to what's called um, a, a default mode position, right? Or it was used to be called a task negative position. And that's what we experience, like we've got nothing else to do. Um, we've just eaten dinner and we're just sitting down on the couch. And, we, and what do we do? We daydream, you know? And when we daydream, um, we don't have any goal at hand. We think about ourselves or something that happened in the past. We think about other people and we think about what other people might think about us. And we just have a whole lot of random thoughts. And that's called the default position. Now, it's not always benign because when we go to our default position, sometimes we, we, we worry about the past and we worry about the future. But we don't necessarily rest in that default position. In other words, the default position is the monkey mind, right? Sort of jumping all over the place. It's not actually at rest. It's not a complete rest anyway. It just hasn't got a goal in mind. And that's why people like to daydream, because it's nice to have a rest from being on task all the time and having a goal. So just let your mind wander wherever it wants to go. Now... Thousands of years ago, people eventually discovered that you could bring conscious awareness to the mind doing nothing, to having nothing to do, which is what meditation really is. It's your conscious, in other words, your brain is working in a conscious way to just be aware of existing, or just being aware of being, right? And that's quite a transformative experience. Because if we can bring conscious awareness to just being in the present, then the mind in that default position really goes into a, a much more deep, restful place. Whereas for most human beings, it's not, it's, not rest, it's not restful, it's restless, that default position. You know, there's a lot of thinking, worrying, fantasizing, in our imaginations trying to get somewhere and feeling frustrated that we can't, all of that goes on. So it's like the mind never rests. But when we bring meditation to that experience, it really gives the possibility for the, the mind to rest and to rest in the present moment. And then if we start to practice something like meditation, um, whatever form it might take, is that our, what happens is our lives move from just being in survival mode 
you know, to getting the next task done, you know, and this and that. And, and then it goes beyond that into not just surviving, but an appreciation of life. Mm-hmm. And that's the shift. That's the shift that occurs through the meditation experience. In a sense, that's what all religious experience in the, or contemplative religious experience is trying to bring us to. It's getting just beyond the survival state of being into a human being into something where we flourish into just appreciating the wonder of life, you know, the, the joy of life, the, the fact that it's here, the colours, the lights, the forms, the smells, you know, the experience of being alive. And that's, that's a very transformative thing um, for a human being to be able to do that. And if I try to bring this down to a a concrete experience as a way of illustrating it is that many years ago Diana and I used to live in the Blue Mountains and we lived just a, around the corner from one of the f- most famous um, uh, tourist sites, lookouts in Australia, which is the Three Sisters lookout. And so we would go down there quite frequently and we'd see tourist buses coming, you know, quite frequently, you know, with people getting out because they want to look at the view. It's a beautiful view to look at, looking over the Jamison Valley. And it momentarily takes people out of themselves. They get that ah kind of moment, moment of seeing the, the vastness of the valleys and the distance and so on. But if you observe most people getting off those tourist buses, they want to go there and they see that. And there is a moment of awe that takes them out of themselves. But what you would notice is most people get very bored by the experience very, very quickly, and then they want to take selfies, and they want, then they want to chat with one another, and then they want to know where the coffee shop is. And, and it's only a very momentary experience of actually stopping still and just taking in and appreciating that beautiful view. The number of people that you would see going there who would stop and just take it in be still and just take it in and be quiet with it for a sustained period of time is very few. Right? And yet it's a deeply moving experience just to be there and to experience that in a very sustained way. That's something that a, someone who practiced meditation would naturally do. That's some, perhaps something that an artist would do or a poet would do to get beyond this this pure survival state of going from the next task to the next task to the next task, to just stopping in the present moment and appreciating life as it is. So I'm still working through this, as you can probably see, but I'm trying to, what, what reading this book did for me is that, is that it brought me a little bit more up to date on the cutting edge of neuropsychology but it prompted in my mind, how does meditation engage with this experience? How does meditation engage with this emerging neuropsychology understanding that we have of the brain and consciousness as how it works? And that's what I think it does, is that it, the, main want, the brain wants to switch off out of survival, but it switches off into this default mode of monkey mind. So it doesn't really stop. And so what 
meditation brings forward, brings to this is a conscious awareness of the present moment and the experience of having no goal, no task. And that opens up a whole different appreciation of what life is. <laughs> 